production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Elizabeth Lesser is a best-selling author and the co-founder of the Omega Institute, an educational retreat in New York for holistic studies. Elizabeth reminds us to bear witness to the complexity of the human experience whilst noticing the small truths and surprises in life. Through her own experiences with grief and the loss of her sister, she teaches us how to approach the dark with grace and care. Elizabeth says what will matter is the good we did, not the good we expected others to do. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss connection and the things that make us uniquely human, the powerful voices of women, and the personal satisfaction that comes with contributing beyond ourselves. The secret in grief is to keep the gap open. This idea of closure is a bad idea because the more you keep the grief hole open, the more the love will be able to remain. Grief is a badge of how well you loved and to wear it proudly. I'm Sarah Grimberg, And this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Elizabeth Lesser is the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including Broken Open, Marrow, and her newest book, Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the Human Story Changes. My conversation with Elizabeth is many things. It's a masterclass in learning to let go, the importance of relationships, and the divine voice that lays within all of us. My hope is that this discussion inspires you to take control of your life and find the beauty that exists in yourself and the world around you. Elizabeth Lesser, not only are you a New York Times bestselling author, but you are also the co-founder of the Omega Institute, which is a not-for-profit centre for self-development learning in New York. Can you tell us, as a child... How did your interest in spirituality begin? Oh, wow. Well, I grew up odd for a spiritual seeker, or maybe not, but I grew up in a family where uh, no one was religious. In fact, there was this equation in my family, like, if you were religious, therefore you were unintelligent. Like, it was only sort of superstitious Uh, dumb people who were interested in things like, is there an afterlife? Uh, Where did I come from? How do I be a good moral person? Like my parents were social activists and intellectuals and sort of, you know, the newspaper was their Bible. So I just happened to be born with this itch. You know, I want to know that some answers to these big questions. I couldn't get it from them. So I would like go with my next door neighbor who was Catholic to mass, but you know, I wasn't allowed to like eat that incredible little wafer or confess. These were all things I really wanted to do. Um, And so from a very early age, I started reading books, you know, even when, even like, In high school, I started looking for answers, reading religious books or or spiritual books. And then by the time I got to college, which was in the 1970s in the United States, very interesting thing was happening. All these gurus from the East were like washing up on the shores of America. And I thought, oh, I want, okay, I want one of them. And so... In college, I just started 
doing yoga, meditating. Now, that may sound sort of normal now, but it was all very weird then, uh, all very fringy, this idea of Eastern spiritual traditions. Um, so that that's, I think, I guess it was what they say, the God-shaped hole. I had a huge one, and I just wanted to fill it. What were the first books that you read when you were young on self-development? The very first quote-unquote spiritual book I read was by the Catholic um, mystic Thomas Merton, and it is called The Seven-Story Mountain. And I think the reason that one appealed to me was I was at Columbia University in New York City, and he had gone there you know, maybe 30, 40 years before me. And he also was born to atheist parents. And he he did this thing where he would get on the subway in New York City and get off at random spots and just go to the first church he saw on the street and sit there and meditate. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. So I started doing that. And... um ended up going into synagogues and mosques and whatever holy place I could find started me on my um, quest for answers. You know, it's so funny you say that. It just reminds me, actually, I've never spoken out loud about this before, but not dissimilar to you. I didn't grow up in a spiritual family, but I always had this yearning to know that there was more and I remember when we were young and my mum used to take my brother and I to swimming lessons and it was at this Catholic school. Well, I am Jewish. My brother would have a swimming lesson after me and so whilst I was waiting for him, I would go outside and you could play ball up against this wall and I would play ball and then when I would get bored of it, I would just go around the school into the classrooms. They'd have these crosses on the walls and these other kind of Catholic, religious, different bits and pieces and I just would stare at them, but I was so fascinated by this whole idea of there was Jesus on the cross, but I didn't really know much about Jesus. But there was right. something that drew right. me to wanting to know more and looking at these things. And then like you, when I would travel, when I went to Italy and other countries that are, you know, deeply religious, going into mosques was so interesting to me. I couldn't go into enough churches. I just found them so fascinating. It's just this innate wonder that we're potentially born with of finding this subject of religion and spirituality so unbelievably fascinating. Yeah, because all religions are, you know, yeah. if you go back to the beginning of them, like who was Jesus? Who was Muhammad? Who were the first humans who drew those spiritual paintings on the caves, you know, all they were were humans, vulnerable, thin-skinned humans asking the same questions we are. Is this all there is? Is there meaning in our suffering? How do we get along? Why are we so afraid? You know, that's all religions start out to mm. be, one person who's a beautiful storyteller about the longings in the human heart. And then, you know, power gets all messed up with it and money and like, you know, we start trying to proselytize and wars. You know, it's absurd. What happens to religions is absurd. But the original flame mm. is one human's heart on fire for the truth. And I know that you became really interested in the Sufi texts. How did that come about? Well, I was in college in New York City, in a big urban university, and there I was, this oddball kid who was yearning for answers, and I was walking across the campus, and I heard this singing coming out of one of the halls. And, you know, Columbia I don't know what the equivalent is in Australia, but it's, you know, a very intellectually rigorous college and everybody's, you know, like yeah. really smart, quote unquote. And um, I'm like, 
singing coming out of that classroom? Like what? I went in and here were these hippies because it was the 1970s. And so any um, alternative kid in the school was a hippie. And I went in and here were these women dressed in long skirts and kind of guys with long hair. And they were holding hands and dancing in a circle and singing Allah, Allah. And I, I thought, what is this? And it was a bunch of students of a Sufi teacher. Now, Sufism is the mystical dimension of Islam. Mm. I knew nothing of Islam. No one in America at that time really did. And, but it was intriguing to me. And I started studying with this teacher, this Sufi teacher, who had, who had, you know, long white beard and robes, the whole thing. But he was an unusual man. He himself had been raised in Europe, even though his parents were from Persia. And um, he himself had gone to Oxford and fought in World War II and was a very, very brilliant man. And he came to America because that's where the students were at that time. And he amassed around him some very smart and uh, sincere seekers. And I studied with him my whole life. He died about 10 years ago. He was the man who had the idea to start Omega Institute, the learning center that I co-founded. It was his idea because he believed in the unity of all spiritual paths. He also was ahead of his time knowing that a healthy body is essential if you're going to really seek well. And so is a healed psychology. Um, he was holistic in his thinking. Can you tell us a bit about the Omega Institute? Because that is something I've heard of for many years. And I always thought when I can go to the States, I am going <coughs> to the Omega Institute. And I've always, this has been a place I've yearned to go to, but I've also wished that there was something like that in Australia. So yeah, please tell us a bit about it. Yeah, well, um, so a bunch of us were students of this teacher, and we were living communally, and he was smart enough to know most people do not want to live communally. In fact, after a very short while, none of us did either, (laughs) you know, living in a big communal setting. And all these different teachers were coming through our commune people teaching us about diet, people teaching about music and about health and about different spiritual paths and meditation and um, things like that, uh, self-help work. And he had the idea, let's, let's start a school where anybody can come uh, who are in, who's interested in this. So back then, some people who are household names now, like let's say Deepak Chopra or the Dalai Lama or people like that who there was, they didn't have any people listening to them. They needed a place where they could come and teach. So we started very small, you know, a few classes in, in, on a pamphlet that we stuck on walls, but within a very short time, we started to grow and we bought our own campus And we now welcome about, well, this is pre-pandemic, about 30,000 people a year to to the campus, but several million a year online to take workshops and trainings and retreats from a large variety of of teachers and not just quote-unquote spiritual teachers. Anyone who's helping our tagline is awakening the best in the human spirit, anyone through whether it's creativity or health or more classical spiritual seeking. That's amazing. Do you see a trend of what people are craving now in the wellness community? Yeah, I mean, I've followed trends now for more than 40 years and it changes. It's really interesting. I mean, the questions are the same. But how we seek and what's appealing because of what's going on in society, it, it has changed. It, it's always like moving like this. What I've been noticing 
recently, like maybe over the past five, eight years, is that um, people have become more and more aware that it's it can't just be about me. Mm-hmm. It can't just be about my health, my awakening. It's got to be about everyone. You know how the Buddha said, until everyone is free and awake, I can't be free and awake. Mm-hmm. So there's a a sense now of this sweet spot between my own healing and my generosity to help the world heal. And I, I, I am noticing that so many of the young up-and-coming teachers are very aware of that, very aware of making sure there's diversity and inclusion in who comes to their workshops, making sure that... Um, there's this understanding that you can work on yourself and work on yourself, and it's this never-ending tape loop. You never, we never get fully healed or healthy. You know, mm. we're always a work in progress. So instead of just always focusing on me and the story of me, opening it up to some uh, generosity toward others. What do you think at the moment? Obviously, in the world that we're living in, there's been a lot of chaos because of all the different bits and pieces that have been happening. And I don't think one person on this on this earth hasn't been affected. We're also seeing a huge divide, probably the biggest divide we've seen in a long time. And mm-hmm. a lot of spiritual people say it's the beginning of an awakening and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. In your personal opinion, how do you feel about the divide that we have at the moment and from, I suppose, a spiritual perspective, how we best move through it? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I don't think our era is all that different from other historical eras. And I think we're, we're not very um, historically educated. Mm. Uh, so, we think this is the worst time or this is the time when we're really going to wake up. But it's, it's been like this throughout human history. Yes. It moves like in these huge para, this, this, this pendulum shifts where big progress toward unity and fairness and, and beauty and healing are made collectively. And then there's a fear backlash and we go back. But I don't think we ever fully go back. I think we're in a big backlash right now because socially an enormous amount of progress has been made over the past hundred years, let's say, women's emancipation. What's going on racially now, um, looking at the, the truth of what happened in so many countries with slavery and the mistreatment of indigenous people, This this is... Uh, what's going on with sexuality and gender. So much has changed really rapidly. That freaks people out. And they tighten up and they look for autocrats to, you know, daddy's back in leadership. He's going to save us. And then we go there and then we go there. But I do happen to be someone who thinks we're always moving toward our better angels, toward unity. The the We took the word... Omega for the name of our institute from the writings of the Christian mystic Tehard de Chardin, mm. who talked about the Omega point where everything is evolving toward unity, which he called the Omega point. So I keep my eye on that point, but I don't put my head in the sand and think either this is it, we're sunk, we're doomed despair, despair, or this is the best time ever and we're finally waking up. Like, I think we've always been moving toward the light, Yes, yes. but there's lots of obstacles in the way all the time, inside ourselves too. (laughs) It's so true. Elizabeth, you say it's what you do with the failure and how you recover and learn. Can you talk about when that has happened to you? Yeah. Um, I wrote a book called Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. And um, I didn't want to tell 
the story of myself in the book because we all have so much shame about those moments you're asking me to talk about, like as if we're the only people who stumble and fall and make massive mistakes. Um, but we're not. We all do it. So I ended up telling everything in that book in service of people knowing we're not alone. So my, I would say my biggest moment, and now it's quite a few years ago, and I've had others. But that biggest moment was when my marriage fell apart and I got divorced and I had two little children and I was poor and I was dragging my kids through a really hard time. And it was through that that so many blessings came my way eventually. The biggest blessing being I had lost everything so there was really nothing left to lose. And that's when I found out who I was. That's when I discovered my strength, my courage, but also there was no one to blame. This wasn't about blame, it wasn't about shame, nor was it about blame. I was going to pick up the pieces and take full responsibility and carve my own life. And I, that never would have happened if I hadn't have lost the marriage. In those times of deep despair that we've all been through before, how do you manage to pick yourself up again when it seems like, like your energy is gone, there are times we feel worthless or we've failed? Where do you find mm -hmm. that inner strength? Mm. Well, the first place... I look for inner strength is to know that I am not some weird freak who's making mistakes and I'm the only one who's ever done it and I'll never be forgiven and shame, 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 shame for our humanness is such a killer of energy and healing and transformation and we all suffer from it. Some people show their shame by going into despair. Some people show their shame by building a really strong wall and pretending that everything's okay and getting brittle and, and um, losing empathy and compassion for the rest of the world. But at the core of all of our falling aparts or defense systems is this sense that there's something uniquely wrong with me. Mm. So... The way I, in my own life, and what I encourage other people to do is to share your story with other people, to stop hiding. The Sufis, the great Sufi poet, Rumi, talks about the open secret. He says, we all going, go around protecting this secret. It's not some sort of big fancy secret. The secret is... I'm a confused, scared, half-baked creature. I don't know what to do. I wake up and I think, what? What am I doing here? And But we, we, we don't want to show that vulnerability to each other. So we, we, keep, we keep the secret of our human vulnerability. But the joke is it, we're all carrying around the same secret. Mm. So it's really an open secret. So opening that up and admitting it to each other um, is a very powerful way to, to get over our shame. Elizabeth, you have written many amazing books and one of your brilliant books is called Marrow that you wrote about your sister Maggie who was diagnosed with leukaemia and you're a bone marrow donor for her. It is such a, such a beautiful, touching book. What did you learn about that experience when you became a donor for your sister? Um, when someone needs a bone marrow transplant, one of the things that um, the doctors warn about is that after my bone marrow would get into my sister, it be infused into my sister, after it's taken out of me, my healthy bone marrow goes into her body that no longer has 
any immunity because in order to do a bone marrow transplant, you have to give them so much chemotherapy that they're basically almost dead. So the fear is my cells would get into her and they would either attack her or she would reject it. It's called rejection and attack. That's the big fear. That's what could kill a bone marrow recipient, either my cells attacking her or her body rejecting the new cells. And when we heard that, um, we thought to ourselves, that's kind of funny. We're sisters, we're siblings, and siblings spend their lifetime from when they're little children till adulthood, either rejecting or attacking each other, <laughs> even if you love each other. Absolutely. You know, that's just the story of siblings. Yeah. Attack and rejection. You know, you didn't sit next to me yeah. on my the bus my whole childhood in elementary school, or you were always fighting with me or picking of me or putting putting me down. I see it with my kids all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have kids, you really know it too. <laughs> so we said to ourselves, wonder if we did a little therapy together, if we went back and healed from all the rejection and attack we had done, because we hadn't only done cute little things. We'd had some really hard times together as sisters as we got older. So we thought maybe we could teach ourselves a lesson how to go back in and repair a relationship so that you create this field of openness and love that ourselves could then, um, she could, she could recover from, from the bone marrow transplant. And, um, we did that. It was an amazing experience. And one thing it taught me was that we think it's so hard to tell the truth to each other and to bear hearing the truth, and then to make amends, to offer apologies, to receive an apology, like, oh, I could never do that. But when someone's life is on the line, you learn it's not that hard. Mm. It's amazing to offer someone the truth of your experience, to ask for forgiveness, or to ask for an apology. And we did that with each other. It was um, painful, difficult, but quick because we had to do it fast. And we used a therapist who helped us. And it was amazing. And what we learned was we should have been doing it all along. Mm. That what had built up over a lifetime of being sisters was this big story that wasn't even based in truth. Mm. So we recovered the truth. And the truth was very simple. I love you. Mm. I need you. I'm sorry I treated you like that. I'm sorry I treated you like that. And we let go of it. And I came away from that thinking, I'm going to try to clean up my relationships with the important people in my life, the ones who want to dance with me. You can't make someone dance who doesn't want to <laughs> dance. And there are some people who won't. And there are also some people who it's dangerous to do that with because they'll use your vulnerability as a chance to um, treat you unkindly. But I contend that most people are just waiting for someone to invite them to the dance. Yes. You know, sometimes I think about us humans like we're teenagers standing around in a dance awkwardly waiting for someone to come up and say, you want to dance? And I think we're like that with each other. If someone comes and offers an authentic request to get a little more real with each other, it's powerful. It's so powerful, Elizabeth. And something that you just mentioned then was about how it all came back down to love and how you and your sister, of course, you loved each other. And that was the common thread. And it's the common thread that binds most of us together. And I wonder in life when you just see people's bravado and their ego and sometimes I think it's so exhausting. It's so, exhausting. when you're so aware of it as well and I just think, come on, just be real. Just really, right. just just be real. 
It's I'm a loving person and you don't need to put an, on an act for me. It's not impressive, but it's it's just, it's like we <laughs> get scared of rejection. And so we try to be someone that we're not. Right. The The only antidote to it, I mean, every now and then you can talk about it with a person who's so caught up in their ego. But but most of the time, the only antidote is to be as real yes. as you can be. Just be it. And, and without like putting on a holier than thou, aren't I so good? Or, you know, like the intention has to not be because I want to show the world this is how to be. You know, it's mm. more, I crave the awakening of all of us, myself included, because that's the only way for this human experiment to heal and be what it could be. Yeah. So just to be it and to do the work and to humbly do the work and not, it doesn't have to be, you know, it, it, it's simple. You're at work, people are being assholes, you feel your own ego getting stoked and you either want to attack or reject the whole thing, you step out of that story and you be the most luminous person you can be without a big storyline around it. Elizabeth, your sister obviously ended up passing away. How did you move through that grief? It's interesting you should say that today. My older sister and I were just talking about her this morning. It's been five years, four years, five years. One way I move through grief is to know it's never over. Mm. She, I will always miss her. There will always be an enormous hole in my heart. There's a beautiful line from um, a beautiful writer who a Bonhoeffer, he was a Christian who was murdered by the Nazis. And he said, um, the secret in grief is to keep the gap open, to keep the hole open. This idea of closure is a bad idea because the more you keep the hole open, the grief hole open, the more they will communicate with you. Mm. the more the love will be able to remain. And if you believe that somehow the soul of that being can communicate with you, got to keep the, the heart open, even if it hurts. Yeah. And so I just stay as open as I can and know that grief is a badge of how well you loved and to wear it proudly in a culture that tells us, you know, oh, your mother died, you get one day off from work. Whereas in the old days, you know, you said you went to Italy in the old Italian villages, the women would wear black for a Mm. year and it would be an announcement. She lost someone. Great respect. Give her room. Give her time. I am a great proponent to the extent that you can and you won't be fired, get as much time off to be in your grief as you can. Grief is a holy experience. Yes. Elizabeth, you have your new book called Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, the human story changes. When did you know that to be true in your life? I was raised in a family of four girls, a mother, a grandmother, a great aunt, and my father. And my (laughs) father was a very domineering, creative, powerful guy. And whatever he wanted to do, all of us had to do. And I always thought, even as a little kid, this is completely unfair, Who made this rule that just because he's the dude in the family, we all have to do it? And I don't know why I was the um, self-appointed dissenter, but I was. I was always like, no, 
I'm not doing that. And why do you get to say it? And I was always getting in trouble. And by the time I got to college, it wasn't only gurus who were washing up on the shore of America. It also was feminists. And I related so intensely to the idea of that feminism is just the idea that women's stories and values are just as important as men's. And how did we get to this place, starting with Adam and Eve, where Eve was the second born, but the first to sin? Why has this story stayed with us throughout the ages in literature and movies and myths and religions where women are second rate, untrustworthy, and the things we love and cherish are kind of second rate, chick lit kind of things. So I wrote Cassandra Speaks because I wanted to expose the old stories that still live in us that make women doubt who we are, doubt our hearts, doubt what we think is possible in the world, doubt what we think is important, and give us some voice to speak our truths. Can you tell us, there is a really great story that you have in the, in the book. It's the Pandora myth. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Pandora, Pandora's story from the Greeks is eerily similar to Eve, mm. to Adam and Eve. Pandora was uh, the first woman in Greek mythology. Now, remember, these are all stories. Yes. Somebody made these stories up. They made up Adam and Eve. They made up Cassandra. They made up Pandora. Who made them up? Men made them up. Nothing wrong with men telling stories. Totally fine. But you just have to remember that the teaching stories were told by men. So um, they told a story that Pandora was the first woman. She was given actually as a punishment. She was a punishment given um to this all-male society, and she was told as she came into existence with this uh, box, don't open the box. Whatever you do, don't open the box. So already it's the same thing as Adam and Eve. It's like, don't eat the apple. The snake says, you can eat the apple. It will give you wisdom. And Eve is curious. Well, Pandora was curious. If somebody said to you, don't open the box, you know, everybody's curious. The Bible is full of stories of curious men who are rewarded for their hero's journey on their curious journey after wisdom. So Pandora did open the box. And out of the box flew all the evils. Before that, men were immortal and had no problems. She opened the box and everything, greed and lust and sickness and death. And right before the last spirit was flying out of the box, she shut it. And the one she left in the box, and this part of the story isn't told very often, but it is in the ancient tale. The spirit left in the box was hope. She left hope in the box so that even though so much evil exists, we still have hope that we can get through it. So um, I tell these stories so us modern women understand why are women not trusted? Why are women's voices and our curiosity and our desire for power and creativity seen as something we need to repress? Like, don't be too loud. Don't tell your opinion. Don't speak your truth. If you do, say it with an apology. You know, you're in a meeting at work and you say, I think others may agree with me on this, but if you don't, that's okay. But, you know, you're, everything is always prefaced with some sort of grand apology. This comes from women having been told this through the stories and culture forever that our curiosity and creativity and power is something to repress. 
what do you think, you know, now obviously being in 2021, there are a lot of women who are in leadership roles and who are very successful and being voices, uh, uh, great voices of, of this generation. How do you see that we've evolved? Well, we've evolved incredibly and it is so thrilling and exciting to me and fraught with potholes because, you know, the great German philosopher Nietzsche said, be careful when fighting monsters, you don't turn into one. So in order to get our foot in the door of power, many of us, I know it for myself as a leader, you have to play by the power rules or you're not going to get anywhere. So many of the first women getting to the top of their industry or political realm or creative realm, artists, we, we have to take on um, the, the extreme end of our male qualities. Yes. You know, I think men and women, we all have that within us because only men have been associated with power. We don't quite know what it would mean like if I got very clear and quiet about how I want to lead, about what I believe in what I cherish, how can I bring that into the leadership realm? We don't get a chance to do that because we're just trying to keep up with this other part of ourselves. So now I'm so interested in what would happen and what will happen and what is happening for women to ask ourselves, who am I? What is my genuine instinct? You know, there's a, a, a wonderful um, science story it's, you know, it's not only Greek myths and religious stories. There's a science story I often tell where in the 1940s in the United States at Harvard University, uh, the head of the psychology department did these studies. He brought people into his lab and he simulated stressful and traumatic experiences and measured the blood and the hormone release of the people like what happens under stress to human beings? And he measured, and he's the one who came up with the saying, fight or flight. So we all tell this story now. Under stress, human beings either fight their aggressors or they flee, they detach. Well, in the early 2000s, a woman, Shelley Taylor at the University of California in Los Angeles, UCLA, she looked at all of his um, data and she discovered that the people he brought into his lab were all men. And this, this isn't unusual. It really is recently that, that most medical studies were only done on men. That's why women in heart disease, women in cancer, like we're suddenly realizing, oh, wow, we have to redo those studies because the treatment would be different. So she redid those studies. She duplicated the um, stressful simulation. And then she measured the women's hormonal and chemical responses. And yes, sometimes under stress, women fight or flee. But more often, she came up with the term tend and befriend. Under stress, under traumatic experiences, Women's instincts often have them tend to the more vulnerable in the community. A a war is happening. The first response isn't fight. It's I got to protect the children, the older people. So that's the tend. Or you come home from work. You've had a really hard day. Your instinct is not to flight, not to retreat into yourself to take, have a beer and watch TV or something. It's more, I'm going to call two of my friends, going to create friendship circles, and I'm going to get support through connection. So it's care and connection. That is an instinct. Now, some people say, well, let's not genderize this, except it is gendered. It's not that men don't have the tender befriend in them, but it's been beaten out of them through culture. And I'm interested in women dignifying tend and befriend. Mm. Like what a cool 
way to deal with problems, to tend and befriend. I'm going to make that heroic. I'm going to call that the hero's journey, tending and befriending. So all of our literature doesn't have to be about war and fighting. It can be about creating circles of friendship and tending to the human garden. Absolutely. How do you think the Me Too movement has changed things for women? Oh, my God. That's why I named the book Cassandra Speaks, because Cassandra was the Greek um, woman who was given the gift of prophecy Mm. by the god Apollo. And he then tried to sleep with her. That was the payment he was expecting. She didn't want to give it to him. So she refused him and he was furious. So he cursed her. He said, you know what? You can keep your gift. You can be clairvoyant. You can tell the future, but no one will believe you. So um, this is another curse that has followed women around. We tell the truth, but we're not believed. And this is nowhere as a parent in sexual abuse and um, whatever kind of ways we're not believed about our bodies and about our sexuality. So the Me Too movement, where women finally said, "Um, no, I actually was raped. I actually did lose my job because I wouldn't sleep with my boss. I am afraid to walk the streets. This is real. Women are finally being believed. And it's, it's, you could have Me Too, not just in the sexual abuse area. All the ways we're not believed, we're told we're hysterical, we're overreacting, we're too emotional. I always say, I am emotional. Emotions have been beaten out of us all. I'm all for being too emotional. The world needs women's emotions. Elizabeth, can you tell us about the work you did with the 9-11 firefighters who were dealing with stress and PTSD? Yeah, that's a story I tell in Cassandra Speaks where um, after the the catastrophe here in New York when um, the planes flew into the towers and the firefighters and the police the first responders were so traumatized by it. But so many men who go into first responder were, is that what you call them in Australia? Yes. First responders. Um, So many of the type of person who goes into that work are very defended people. Uh, Very like to be a man is to be like this, you know, a really tough guy. And, so there, after a couple of years, um, those with PTSD just were not asking for help and they were really having trouble on the job. So um, it was required of them to take these classes in how to deal with their PTSD. And um, people who had uh, social work and mindfulness backgrounds were asked could you lead a few classes and here's the curriculum and here's what you do. So I was one of those people and I worked with primarily firefighters, but some policemen also over a course of several weeks offering this class. And it was, um, it was a wonderful, difficult, funny experience because I loved the guys and they liked me a lot too, but They were almost entirely unwilling to do what they really needed to do, which was to um, let down their defenses, feel their feelings, go through as a way of going out as opposed to going around. Going around for them often meant drinking more, being aggressive, uh, shutting down some had lost their families, their wives, because they became abusive. Um, and the only way for them to work on it was to open their hearts and to melt a little bit. 
And that was very, very hard for them. And so um, that was where I found myself with these, with these guys. And they experienced what I was asking them to do as being feminine, as the feminization of them. And that troubled them. They didn't, you know, the way we say in, in our culture that to girls we say, you can be anything a boy can be. But we don't say to boys, you can be anything a girl can be. Yeah. You can be open-hearted, communicative, soft. I'm not saying all girls are open-hearted, communicative, and soft, but it, it is perceived as a more feminine quality. They felt that's what I was asking them to do. And I tried to go with them into what does it say about what we think about women if you think feminization means bad, means weakness? What does that say about what we think about women? Girls are proud when we're tomboys and we're tough and we can dress like guys and act like guys. We, we want that. Why don't you want this? What does this say about what we think about women in our culture? Anyway, I won't go into the whole story with them, but it, it, I, made, I made this much progress and it was a wonderful experience. And some of them have stayed in touch with me and written that they do hang on to some of the things we talked about. They are so fortunate to have had you there to be able to teach them that. <laughs> Out of everything you've obviously from many years ago, starting the Omega Institute, your own learnings in spirituality that you continue to obviously nurture more. What are the key things that you feel it comes back to that the, that the teachers are saying that you have used in your own life to achieve happiness and love? Well, I think the thing that has helped me the most and I notice helps others, is um, the nature of life is change. Mm. And our nature is resisting change. So that's not going to work. Resisting the nature of where we are, it's like being in a river and just going against the current all the time. When if you would just relax and go with the river you'd actually um, experience life with a much more joyful way of being. So putting down the fight against what's happening, whether that's I'm sick, the world is in a really horrible place these days, um, my marriage is bad, I lost my job, my kids are driving me crazy, all the things we all go through, the way we say, that's not fair. I don't want it. I don't like it. I vote against this, even though it's already happening. Putting down that fight. Ah, living in what is already happening, going with it and asking it, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I use this to wake up? How can I use this? to be of service to the people in my life. So much energy is freed up when we stop fighting what is. Yeah. And that's what meditation is all about. That's what yoga is all about. That's what prayer is all about. That's what the whole spiritual hoo-ha, all the words, all the books, it's about showing up in this moment with whatever is happening um, and going with it and asking for direction um, so that we can uh, be generous humans. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Oh, gosh. Well, well I am a writer and a speaker 
So the advice for me that meant a lot might be different than if you're an electrician or a babysitter. I don't know. But um, I was sitting backstage once, incredibly nervous, because no matter how many times I've spoken, I always have the imposter syndrome. I'm nervous. Who am I to be saying this? It's just like, it always happens. It happens before I got on with you. It just happens. And there was a, uh, a little monk sitting there and he noticed I was nervous. And he said to me, you don't need to show them how smart you are. You need to love them so they know how good they are. You don't need to show them how good you are. You need to love them so they know how good they are. And in all aspects of my life, I try to use that. What, what somebody needs from me as much as possible, unless they like really don't deserve it, but most times they do, they need me to love them as best I can. And then they will pay that forward yes. to the other people. Stop trying to, you said it earlier, like how exhausting it is when someone's trying to prove to you how great they are, how kind they are, how smart they are, how powerful they are. It's like, it's exhausting. Stop it. Mm. Like, could we just be human together? And could we try to love each other? Beautiful. Elizabeth, what's your favorite prayer? Um, my favorite prayer is remove the veils from my eyes, from my heart. Remove this story I'm always telling so I can see what's really going on here. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? I would have to say the, the lucky times that I have felt in direct communication with people who have passed on. Mm. Signs from my father, from a friend who died, from my sister Maggie. Those are stunning. I court them. I pray for them. What's your greatest hope for society today? That we would know we are more alike than unalike, Mm. and we'd stop um, otherizing, making each other into this foreign other, that we would cross that barrier with each other. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Fighting against reality. Yeah. You know, fighting that people do get sick. People do die. I get sick. I will die. My organization has problems. My children, my grandchildren, like shit happens. (laughs) It's okay. Be with it. Don't fight it. Go with it. And then the power of the universe opens up to you instead of you're swimming against the river Mm. all the time. This is the hardest lesson. Yes. What is a life of greatness to you? Uh, Oh, there's a beautiful quote from an American pastor, Howard Thurman. He was Dr. King's preacher. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and do that because what the world needs are people who have come alive. So that's a life of greatness that you would be doing what makes you come alive. Elizabeth Lesser, thank you for doing what has made you come alive because it has been such a gift for so many people. So thank you for the conversation today. Thank you for your beautiful questions. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. 
A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search A Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.